Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back. This is another installment of Spirits in Bondage, reading with Brandos, whatever you want to call it. Uh, <laughs> my name is Jeff, and Sherry is here, and we're going to dive right into the next poem from C.S. Lewis's book. This, yeah. next one, <clears throat> this next one is called Ode for New Year's Day. It's poem number eight out of the first section of the book. Woe unto you, ye sons of pain, that are this day in earth. Now cry for all your torment, now curse your hour of birth. And the fathers who begat you to apportion nothing worth. And thou, my own beloved, for as brave as ear thou art, bow down thine head, despoina, clasp thy pale arms over it. Lie low with fast-closed eyelids clenched teeth, enduring heart, for sorrow on sorrow is coming wherein all flesh has part. The sky above is sickening, the cloud, the clouds of God's hate cover it. Body and souls shall suffer beyond all word or thought, till the pain and noisy terror that these first years have wrought seem but the soft arising and prelude of the storm the, that fiercer still and heavier with sharper lightnings fraught shall pour red wrath upon us over a world deformed. <clears throat> Thrice happy, O oh, Despoina, were the men who were alive in the great age and the golden age when still the cycle ran on upward curve and easily for them both maid and man. And beast and tree and spirit in the green earth could thrive. But now one age is ending and God calls home the stars and looses the wheel of the ages and sends it spinning back amid the death of nations and points a downward track. And madness is come over us and great and little wars. He has not left one valley, one isle of fresh and green where old friends could foregather amid the howling wreck. It's vainly we are praying. We cannot, cannot check the power who slays and puts aside the beauty that has been. It's truth, they tell Despoina. None hears the hearts complaining, for nature will not pity, nor the red god lend an ear. Yet I too have been mad in the hour of bitter painting, and lifted up my voice to God, thinking that he could hear. The curse wherewith I cursed him, because the good was dead. But lo, I am grown wiser, knowing that our own hearts have made a phantom called the good, while the few years have sped over a little planet. And what should the great Lord know of it who tosses the dust of chaos and gives the suns their parts. Hither and thither he moves them. For an hour we see the show of it. Only a little hour and the life of the race is done. And here he builds a nebula and there he slays a sun and works his own fierce pleasure. All things he shall fulfill. And oh, my poor Despoina, do you think he ever hears the wail of hearts he has broken, the sound of human ill? He cares not for our virtues, our little hopes and fears. And how could it all go on, love, if he knew of laughter and tears? Ah, sweet, if a man could cheat him, if you could flee away into some other country beyond the rosy west, to hide in the deep forests and be forever at rest from the rankling hate of God and the outworn, the outworn world's decay. Whew, that was a long one. <laughs> long and really depressing. Depressing. <laughs> really unhappy. This is a <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with that one. 
it seems like it's more of the same from, uh, you know, the theme that he's been going with in, in several of the last few poems that we've read. Yeah, it's definitely coming out of the whole post-war, you know, spirit, right? All that, that idea of all of this was for nothing, just a big, a lot of disappointment. And, um, Despoina just is, um, was the daughter of Demeter and Poseidon, and um, she was the goddess of mysteries of Arcadian cults and was worshipped under the title Despoina, the, the mistress. And then she, and I remember reading something about her morphing into other gods. Um, I haven't got it right on the top of my head right now. I can look like uh, maybe Dionysus or... I'm looking, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page right now. It says um, she's the daughter of Demeter and Poseidon and sister of Arion, which I'm not familiar with Arion. Oh, the Arion is a divinely bred, extremely swift, immortal horse, which according to the Latin poet Sextus Propertius <laughs> was endowed with speech. That's interesting. It says, it says on that Wikipedia page at the bottom there, in the Orthodox Church, the title Displayna is given to the mother of God. Which oh, is, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. And it so, was yeah. also a feminine court title, meaning Lady Despoina. So it was used in the courts in Byzantine Greece. And so in modern Greek, it means miss and can be used to address young ladies and waitresses. So hmm. it's a young lady term, I guess. It's very, um, sorry, give me just a second. I'm having technical difficulties. It's very interesting that um, he uh, directs this poem toward Despoina over and over again. It's like that's who the, the character of the poem is talking to. Yeah, he calls her his beloved. I wonder if that has something to do with um, just the way a man might feel about, you know, being a soldier... I always, I always imagined that being a soldier, even if you are a married man, would involve some, some feeling of protecting women and children. Like, you know, that you're, you know, you're not just, you're not just uh, defending your country, but you're also protecting the, the women and the children, you know, the people in your society that are weaker and more vulnerable. Mm. Mm. So maybe that's who he was talking to in a broader sense. Could be. He's talking to the he's talking to the feminine, you know. Mm -hmm. Obviously. Yeah. And it's just, you know. Yeah, it's just it's just like you said, more of the same kind of thing that we've read so far. Mm-hmm. It's uh, in the, the next one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> it's a little bit shorter. Maybe we can break it apart a little bit easier. See, see if he gets away from this, you know, where he where he's been, eh? Where his head's been in the last little bit. Yeah, I have a feeling he's still gonna want to get some more out. <laughs> well, he's, he's in prison, right? He's in yep. prison. Here, so. That's right. You want to take this next one? I think it's the longest section of the book, really. This mm. first part. Mm -hmm. Okay, this one's called Night. After the fret and failure of this day and weariness of thought, O Mother Night, come with soft kiss to soothe our care away and all our little tumult, tumults set to right. Most pitiful of all death's kindred fair, riding above us through the curtained air, on thy dusk car thou scatterest to the earth sweet dreams and drowsy charms of tender might and lovers dear delight before tomorrow's birth. Thou art, thou want thy quiet lands to leave, and pillared courts beyond the milky way, wherein thou tarriest all our solar day, 
while unsubstantial dreams before thee weave a foamy dance and fluttering fancies play about thy palace in the silver ray of some far moony globe. But when the hour, the long expected, comes, the ivory gates open on noiseless hinge before they bower unbidden. And the jeweled chariot waits with magic steeds, thou from the fronting rim, bending to urge them while whilst thy sea-dark hair falls in ambrosial ripples o'er each limb. With beautiful pale arms untrammeled, bare for horsemanship to those twin chargers fleet, dost give full rein across the fires that glow in the wide floor of heaven from off their feet, scattering the powdery, powdery stardust as they go. Come swiftly down the sky, O lady night. Fall through the shadow country, O most kind, Shake out thy strands of gentle dreams and light for chains, wherewith thou still art used to bind, with tenderest love of careful leech's art, the bruised and weary heart in slumber blind. That's pretty heavy. That's pretty heavy. After the fret and failure of this day. Yeah, I mean, the, the poem to me, just a, at a surface level, looks like he's beckoning sleep to come take him out of the events of the day, out of, you know, whatever bad has happened, if he could just go to sleep and be blind to the world around him. It's just how I read the very end of it. Yeah, and that's how he starts it. After the fret and failure of this day and weariness of thought, O Mother Night, come with soft kiss to soothe our care away and all our little tumults or tumults set to right. So yeah, he, he wants to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Most pitiful of all deaths, kindred fair, riding above us through the curtained air. Huh. I wonder what that means. All deaths, kindred fair. He's, he's talking about night, right? Yeah, mother night. So it's not, it's also a feminine here. Um, I guess just night representing death, darkness. Yeah, I think night. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. This is really exciting to watch us <laughs> figure, figure out what these poems mean. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Thus art thou wont thy quiet lands to leave and pillared courts beyond the Milky Way. He's just saying there that she has to leave. She has to leave her quiet lands and you know descend on the on the on the earth, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and yeah, he's just describing night descending. You know, when the hour yeah. the long but it comes, the ivory gates open on noiseless hinge before thy bower unbidden, and the jeweled chariot waits with magic steeds like the stars in the sky. Mm -hmm. uh, from the fronting rim, bending to urge them whilst that, thy sea-dark hair falls in ambrosial ripples or each limb. That's really beautiful, actually, very descriptive. That's really nice. I like mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. With beautiful pale arms, untrammeled, bare for horsemanship to those twin chargers fleet, thus give full rein across the fires that glow, which would be the sunset. Mm. In the wide floor of heaven from off their feet, scattering the powdery stardust as they go. Come swiftly down the sky, O lady night. Fall through the shadow country, O most kind. Shake out thy strands of gentle dreams and light. For chains wherewith thou still art used to bind with tenderest love of careful leech's art. The bruised and weary heart in slumber blind. Yeah, it's just a welcoming. And it's almost like, as I'm looking down the next the next poem seems to just be a continuation into the next part. Oh yeah, to sleep. Of that idea. So I'll read that one and see if it will help us. <laughs> sure. So poem 10 in the first section called The Prison House is called To Sleep. 
I will find out a place for thee, O sleep, a hidden wood among the hilltops green, full of soft streams and little winds that creep, the murmuring boughs between, a hollow cup above the ocean placed, where nothing rough nor loud nor harsh shall be, but woodland light and shadow interlaced, and summer sky and sea. There in the flagrant twilight I will raise a secret altar of the rich sea sod, whereat to offer sacrifice and praise unto my lonely God. Do sacrifice of his own drowsy flowers, the deadening poppies in an ocean shell, round which through all forgotten days and hours, the great seas wove their spell. So may he send me dreams of dear delight and drafts of cool oblivion, quenching pain and sweet half wakeful moments in the night to hear the falling rain. And when he meets me at the dusk of day to call me home forever, this I ask, that he may lead me friendly on that way and wear no frightful mask. Mm -hmm. hmm. So sleep is, is masculine in this poem. Mm -hmm. Night is feminine. wonder if he has that from mythology. Like, I don't really know much about where night falls, like his, his yeah. mythology. I don't know. But, I mean, he was well-versed in mythology, and it's possible that night has a feminine characteristic to it or something. Mm -hmm. I like that he anthropomorphizes these things, you know, <laughs> makes them people. Yeah, it's fun. Um, I mean, that's that's nice for a poet, because then you can embody them right you can you can give them the ability to do things mm -hmm. like that yeah i like it how the poem i mean the sense that i got the first time that i read this um was that he was he was staking out a place to <laughs> to just go sleep and there's a part of me that wonders if you know, I'm thinking about it in terms of like going to look for a place to lay down and die. Because the, the way that the, there's something in the way that the poem ends. Um, okay. To call me home forever, right? This I ask that he may lead me friendly on that way and wear no frightful mask. It's like when my when my time comes, I want to have a peaceful place to go lay down. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't want death to be this, this horrible, all of these horrible things that I've seen in life. You know, I want it to, the, the, my, my dying prayer is that it's not frightful. It's not this frightful mask of nature anymore or of, um, I guess the painful suffering that, and death that lives in existence that it's that death isn't really this horrible thing i don't know i might be reading a lot into that <laughs> i think you are reading a lot into it Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest yeah <laughs> because he said the way i read it is too hopeful <laughs> <laughs> well you know there i when he okay, so he says, I will find out a place for the O sleep. So I'm looking for somewhere for you, right? Mm -hmm. Hidden wood among the hilltops green, full of soft streams and little winds that creep and murmuring boughs between a hollow cup above the ocean place where nothing rough nor loud nor harsh shall be, but woodland light and shadow interlaced in summer sky and sea. Mm -hmm. So he's just looking for somewhere peaceful mm -hmm. where, where sleep can come, right? And um and then he's worried, you're right, like he, at the end, he's worried that, and I don't think he's worried about death, he's worried about nightmares. Mm, interesting. So he says, so may he send me dreams of dear delight and drafts of cool oblivion, quenching pain and sweet, half-wakeful moments in the night to hear the falling rain. So he mm. just, just wants to be oblivious, okay? Like, he, yeah. he's, he's still involved in the war, but he just wants to be oblivious. And then he says, and when he meets me at the dusk of day to call me home forever, which is when, you know, he's going to go to sleep, 
then he may lead me friendly on that way and wear no frightful mask. So it's like, no nightmares, please. That's the, that's the impression I get. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And I think that might be, I mean, it would be, it would be um, typical of people with PTSD to have nightmares, mm. right? Yeah. And so when you're in a situation like that, that's dreadful, and there's a lot of terrible things going on. You need a place to go where you don't have to deal with it again, you know, because you, mm. when you open your eyes, you're dealing with it. And when you close your eyes, you don't want to deal with it. You want to go to sleep. You want to have, you want to have that cool oblivion that he talks about, right? Mm -hmm. So I think he's worrying about having nightmares. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Another way that I was just thinking about it just now is I'm just reading that last stanza, you know, the dusk of day, that's usually when you're waking up too though, right? And I'm not. No, that would be the dawn. Oh you yeah, you're right, you're right, sorry. The dusk yeah. of day. The dusk of day is when night is coming, that's right, sorry. And, and um, um, he does a lot of evening stuff, doesn't he? Now that, mm -hmm. I, now that I think about it, you know, mm -hmm. like the, uh, the Irish nocturne and the French nocturne. And, night. You know, <laughs> night. Yeah, you know, it's like, well, okay, so this is Second World War. Is this second or first? First. First, okay. Oh, that, okay, so that makes more sense because I think at night they didn't fight. Mm -hmm. First World War, they fought during the day and at night they didn't fight. I mean, there might have been armed skirmishes here and there, but basically everybody could sleep. Like there was, there was still this uh, idea of, you know, what do they call those rules of engagement, right? Mm -hmm. And um, we've kind of lost that in warfare today. Like it, it's gotten more and more difficult to establish the rules of engagement because people are sneaking around a lot. But in those days, they still had those rules of engagement, and um, like that's why you see these amazing stories of soldiers celebrating Christmas together and then, and then killing each other the next day, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because they had this social etiquette that was stood over top, it was above everything else. And so I, you know, when we were reading those nocturne poems and stuff, I thought, I wasn't sure if this was second or first, but yeah, first makes sense because, um, yeah, because they didn't fight at night. Yeah, there was actually an opportunity for rest if those rules were in place. Yeah, I mean, they didn't have the technology to fight at night, right? They weren't running around with, like... Infrared. Um, LED headlights and, <laughs> you know, kind of. <laughs> So, yeah, everybody had to rest. They had, you know, they had horses, right? They were dragging artillery around with horses, and, and, and everybody needed to rest. It was just the way it was. So... Mm -hmm. I think maybe it was a it was a welcome time for C.S. Lewis as a soldier. It was like, okay, I made it through the day. I'm still alive, right? And now mm -hmm. I'm gonna rest. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, I'm not gonna have any nightmares. Let's see if I can actually get some sleep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and get through the next day. Yeah. All right. Our next one is called "In Prison." Okay. This is like the. The title track. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I cried out. Is it my turn to read? Mm -hmm. Okay. I cried out for the pain of man. I cried out for my bitter wrath against the hopeless life that ran forever in a circling path from death to death since all began. Till on a summer night, I lost my way in the pale starlight and saw our planet far and small through endless depths of nothing fall a lonely pinprick spark of light upon the wide enfolding night with leagues on leagues of stars above it and powdered dust of stars below dead things that neither hate nor love it not even their own loveliness can know being but cosmic dust and dead and if some tears be shed some evil god have power some crown of sorrow sit upon a little world for a little hour who shall remember who shall care for it? Uh, 
I like the newer C.S. Lewis better than the older one. <laughs> <laughs> this is where he's working out all of his trauma. True. Cried out for the pain of man, for my bitter wrath against the hopeless life that ran forever in a circling path. Yeah. Well, that's just it's just meaninglessness. Yeah, it's, it's just, you know, it's war, right? It's just a constant, constantly circular experience of death for no particular reason. You know, it's like you might be defending your country, but when you start defending your life, your country recedes quite, quite back into the, into the you know, it's, it becomes further and further away, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering about this line where he loses his way in pale starlight and sees our planet far and small. Mm -hmm. I like that. He's getting, he's panning out. He's panning, panning way out, right? And getting kind of this view of kind of what the astronaut feels when he looks out and he says, oh, we're all, like, why are we fighting? Why are we trying to kill each other? We, this is our, you know, we're all, we all belong to this planet, right? This is our home. It's the, it's the big picture kind of thing. A lonely pinprick spark of light upon the wide enfolding night. Leagues on leagues of stars above it and powdered dust, dust of stars below. Dead things that neither hate nor love. Not even their own loveliness can know. Dead things that neither hate nor love it, not even their own loveliness can know, being but cosmic dust and dead, and if some tears be shed, some evil god have power, some crown of sorrow set on a little world for a little hour. Who shall remember? Who shall care for it? <laughs> He's very right about that. I like that. Like, you know, it's like Come on, people. You gotta, he, 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 he's giving us a, a bigger picture, right? He's giving us a bigger view. Mm -hmm. We are just this whole planet, you know, in the sky. And, but. Yeah, it's a very, um, I wanna say something besides materialist, but it's a very um, uh, nihilist view of just like, there's, you know, I, you can cry out for the pain of man. You can cry out of your bitter wrath against hopeless life in this pointless circling path. It's just been death upon death since, you know, the beginning. And then I look at this small planet and it's just so small. There's, yeah. there's nothing on it that will ever live. It's all just cosmic dust anyway. Um, there's no tears that are ever going to be shed. No one who will remember anything. No one will care for this. I don't know. And God just, is evil. Yeah. <laughs> God is an evil God. Or some, I don't know if God is evil or, or if you think some evil God is in control at the moment. But um, yeah, I mean... How much more? How much more of a nihilistic environment could you be in than than in in, in a war, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's see how if much. You have, if you have any kind of, if you have any kind of depth to your soul, which I, almost everyone does, and you look around at what's going on and what you're doing and why you're doing it, it will very quickly feel wrong. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of have to. I would imagine that you have to. You have to cut yourself off from your own humanity to be able to survive. Yeah. Ugh. And maybe writing these poems was how uh, C.S. Lewis was able to do that. You know, was able to sort through that. Mm -hmm. To hang on to it somehow. Process it. Yeah. Let's see if it gets any more uplifting. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just previewing the next one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll read it. The next you, one is number 12, uh, De Profundis. Come, let us curse our master ere we die, for all our hopes in endless ruin lie. The good is dead. Let us curse God most high. 4,000 years of toil and hope and thought, wherein man labored upward and still wrought. New worlds and better thou hast made as naught. We built us joyful cities strong and fair. Knowledge we sought and gathered wisdom rare. And all this time you laughed upon our care. And suddenly the earth grew black with wrong. Our hope was crushed and silenced was our song. The heaven grew loud with weeping. Thou art strong. Came then and cursed the Lord over the earth. Gross darkness falls and evil was our birth. And our few happy days of little worth. Even if it be not all a dream in vain, the ancient hope that still will rise again, again, (laughs) of a just God that cares for earthly pain. Yet far away beyond our laboring night, he wanders in depths of endless light, singing alone his musics of delight. Only the far spent echo of his song our dungeons and deep cells can smite along and thou art nearer thou art very strong O universal strength i know it well it is but froth of folly to rebel for thou art lord and hast the keys of hell yet i will not bow down to thee nor love thee For looking in my own heart, I can prove thee and know this frail, bruised being is above thee. Our love, our hope, our thirsting for the right, our mercy and long seeking of the light, shall we change these for thy relentless might? Laugh, then, and slay. Shatter all things of worth. Heap torment still on torment for thy mirth. Thou art not Lord while there are men on earth. Mm. Is he talking about as Lord there? I don't think he's talking about God. I don't think so. So the first time that I read this, I initially was thinking he was talking about God, but then no, I don't think he is. I think the, the God of, let's say the God of the Bible, he says, a universal strength, for thou art Lord and hast the keys of hell. Yes. Well, I'm so, wondering if, that, if that's what principalities and powers, like world governments, and, you know, because that's, that's, what's, that's what's giving him, like, that's the world he's in, right, as a mm-hmm. result of these powers. Like, he's mm-hmm. in, in a war. He's been drafted. He doesn't have a choice. And mm-hmm. there he is, you know, so... And he talks about it as universal strength, which sounds military to me. Mm-hmm. You know, but he says, "Yet I will not bow down to thee, nor mm-hmm. love thee. For looking in my own heart, I can prove thee, and know this frail, bruised being is above thee." And that's kind of what we were just talking about in the last poem of how. Um, Where was that now? I'm just looking at it here. Yeah, just that nihilistic feeling, you know, mm. of, of being stuck in it. And de profundis means a heartfelt cry of appeal expressing deep feelings of sorrow or anger, anguish. Mm. So it's deep. My, my reading on this um, one part of it is that the the God of the Bible does make his way into this poem, does, yeah. but he says, if this God exists, he's off far into the distance somewhere where he can't even see what's going on. He's just singing right. his own delightful songs. He's like completely detached. He's, you know, 
asleep at the wheel, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah it wanders in the depths of endless light, singing his music of delight, right? Mm -hmm. with it's just like we're, we're at, at best, we're getting smote or smited by these songs as we sit here in our dungeon. You know, we can't feel any goodness from it. Um, and there are these other powers, or there's this power, this Lord that just, you know, wreaks death and havoc and war and all of the, the suffering that's in the world. That's what, that's the power that we're under. But I did see like a certain uh, humanism, like hopefulness that says, I will not bow to thee. As long as there are men on earth, we will not uh, say that this, this way uh, this, uh, the order of things as they are now is acceptable. This will never be acceptable to the human spirit as much as we are, uh, oppressed by it. That's, that's the way that I read this poem. Mm -hmm. Laugh then and slay, shatter all things of worth, heap torment still on torment for thy mirth. Thou art not Lord, while there are many. So yeah, yeah. definitely. Mm -hmm. Yay, I got that one right. <laughs> you got it. You got it right, Jeff. <laughs> I can give you a little star. A little gold star. <laughs> you can't get this stuff wrong, really. Uh, <laughs> I've been reading a Poetic Diction, and um, in there, Owen Barfield says that the poem, I can't remember the exact phrase he used, so what I'm doing is I'm reading it and going, oh, I need to write a note. And then I'm like, no, 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 just keep reading. And then <laughs> you read it again and write notes, you know. So if I don't write notes. I can't remember exactly what it is. But he just talks about how a poem is, is twofold, really, because uh, it means something to the poet, you know, and it means something to the reader. And they mm -hmm. can be two completely different things, right? So that's, that's yeah. kind of... Um, and I, I know, I know I said, it, I said you got it wrong, but. <laughs> <laughs> now, no, the place where you can definitely run into trouble is when you read words like dusk and confuse them with dawn and vice versa. <laughs> like, but you're, that word means the opposite of what you think. <laughs> I know, but that was, that was the poet being very subtly subversive. But maybe did mean dusk of, maybe didn't mean that maybe he was calling dawn the dusk of day like seriously like you know it can happen who knows it happened with these silly poets <laughs> <laughs> did uh i can't remember did i read the last one i think i did yeah yeah you want me to read this one? yeah this you get to read this next one this one sounds fun and light yeah <laughs> <laughs> this is a repeat title too because oh, he already wrote yeah, he wrote, he, I think it was like the third one or something. Oh, okay. I don't have my cable, table of contents available here. I'd have to page all the way back. Or at least I don't know how to use my Kindle app, one or the other. <laughs> I'll, I'll open mine in another tab and see if I can. I don't know if the microphone picks up my stomach, but it just growled really loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the very first poem in this section was called Satan Speaks. So yeah, this yeah. is a this is a reprise of well, at least a, a use of the same title. Okay, so let's see what he's got to say here. Satan speaks, I am the Lord your God, even he that made material things and all these signs arrayed above you and have set beneath the race of mankind who forget their father's face. And even while they drink my light of day, dream of some other gods and disobey my warnings and despise my holy laws, even though their sin shall slay them, for which cause dreams dreamed in vain and never filled desire and in close flesh a spiritual fire, a thirst for good, a thirst for good their kind shall not attain, a backward cleaving to the beast again, a loathing for the life that I have given, a haunted, twisted soul forever riven. Between their will and mine, such lot I give. White still I in my dis sorry. Between their will and mine, such lot I give. White still in my despite the vermin live. They hate my world. Then let that other God come from the outer spaces glory shod and from this castle I have built on night. 
steal forth my own thoughts, children, into light. If such an one there be, but far away he walks the airy fields of endless day. And my rebellious sons have called him long and vainly called. My order still is strong and like to me nor second than I know. Whither the mammoth went, this creature too shall go. <laughs> That's kind of like the last one there. Mm. About, you know, he describes God as, you know, whistling Dixie in some little <laughs> utopia. Yeah. <laughs> Some heavenly apartment that's way far away. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And um, Satan's got, you know, he's he's got his order happening, right? Yeah. My order is strong and, yeah. White stones. Yeah, he's just claiming. <laughs> then let that other God come from the outer spaces glory shod and from this castle i have built on night steal forth my own thoughts children into light if such a one there be but far away he walks the airy fields of him. yeah it's like it's talking about that far away god again almost mm -hmm. and satan's speaking right here just saying yeah wherever he is i'm i'm the one that's running this show it's like the what is it um the I'm completely losing the term, but it was something that I remember hearing in church. Uh, the prince of the power of the air. That's, uh, yeah. I think that's in the Bible somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I mean, honestly, if you're in, if you're in the midst of a battlefield and you're seeing what's going on around you, it doesn't feel like God. It's like, where the hell is he? You know, mm. <laughs> what, yeah. where, you know, this is, I'm in hell here. And, um, what's going on who's got the throne you know mm -hmm. who's got the power and i you know i can see why he would be um you know he might have been doubtful as a child about the existence of god but now he's he's mad mm -hmm. he's angry you know he it's feels a, abandoned yeah I mean, these are very easy thoughts to have even when you're not um, yeah. Well, even when you're not, even when you don't find yourself in like the chaotic goings on of of war, you know, if you just yeah. find yourself in a tragic situation, um, yeah, it's it's very easy to ask those questions and wonder. And it's very, I don't, I'm very sympathetic with um, the atheist who just says, I cannot, I cannot accept what's around me and say that there's this God, this wonderful you know, being that so many people talk about exists and loves and cares about me, um, everyone else, you know, for that matter, uh, that loves everything and everybody and loves the world. It's just like, I, I can certainly understand that perspective of, well, I don't, I don't see how something like that is possible, you know? Yeah. I can, I can, I can sympathize with it, but I personally, and I've been through my, fair share of suffering, you know, um, some of it tragic, um, but I've always had the feeling like I'm capable of this stuff too. Like mm -hmm. I have to take responsibility for, like, this is what mankind does. Mm -hmm. you know? Not like God abandoned anyone. It's just that God stepped back because, you know, um, he doesn't interfere. <laughs> Why, you know, if he did, if he did, we, We'd be like Dostoevsky describes, a, you know, trying to figure out some way to disturb the, you know, make the utopia go away because mm -hmm. we, we need that thing, right, to upset the apple cart. We need that excitement, that, that idea of, of discovery and, and so on. And, um, you know, <clears throat> I was talking with Michael about um, Barfield and he was, you know, saying that Barfield talks about the beginning of... You know, in the you know, the older you go back in language, the more poetic it is because mm. because people lived kind of interwoven with the with the metaphysical, like they. And so he is the example of Numa, um, breath, wind, mm -hmm. spirit, yep. all being one word, right? And and so you would say one word, and it described all those things, and then it came to my mind that 
um, they used to say, uh, or I mean, we say bless you when someone sneezes and the, and the origin of that is that people believe that you would, your breath would come out, which was your spirit, and you could be inhabited by a demon for that mm. brief second, right? So you, they blessed you quickly so that you weren't possessed by a demon when you sneezed because your yeah. breath came out, right? And nothing would sneak in. And so, yeah, you were kind of unprotected for a minute. Interesting. And, um, but that just goes to show how, how all of it was relevant you know, like the salience landscape for the ancient person was metaphysical and physical. It was all mm -hmm. the same. All there, was, there was no split between the two. Yeah, no division between heaven and earth, right? And, mm -hmm. and so Barfield calls that original participation. So everybody is participating in, in both of those worlds at the same time. And... Um, and then there's this digression, you know, away from it. So the farther away from, from well, like I'm not that well read yet in Barfield, but I'm assuming like ancient man, the farther away we go, the less poetic the language, the less um, involved in that original participation we are. Mm. And of course he blames that on, um, scientism because uh, we, we become reductionist which mm -hmm. then we every, like we can just reduce everything to something right something yeah. else and um but then we that but then we swing back to what he calls final participation and i haven't read enough like i said i haven't read enough yet um but the idea that you know when he said when he set that out i thought well that is the scriptures, like the scriptures start with original participation, mm -hmm. then there's digression, and then there's this final participation. You know, it's the same pattern. And Barfield believes that it's necessary. Like we actually have to go through it. I don't know why yet, because I haven't gotten there. But so does God, right? God actually thinks it's necessary mm. <laughs> that we go through it. And... Um, I don't know why I started talking about that. I'm just going to at this poem again. Well, I had a question. You've got, you've got original participation where it's more, you know, poetic and there's a lot packed into a single word, right? A lot of different meanings and connotations like spirit, for example, or um, I've heard Malcolm Geit, um, who I think is an Anglican, I think he's an Anglican priest. I can't remember for sure, yeah. but I saw him on one of Paul Vanderclay's videos. Uh, he didn't talk to him, but he played one of his one of his lectures or a piece of it. And he also used the word move, right? He he talked about spirit and he said spirit used to mean all of the things, just like you talked about, you know, pneuma, breath, um, an actual uh like what we think of as ghost, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, and, all wind. Of, and wind, yeah, and all those things were just packed into that one word, pneuma. Um and he talked about how we, in our language today, have, have lost that, right? We've broken that up into a bunch of different words that mean precisely what each thing is that we're talking about. He gave an example of one where we haven't lost it yet, but we could very soon lose it. You could see us start to losing it. And he talked about move or moving, right? Um, move is like picking up an object and moving it from here to there. That's one way. But move also um, contains the meaning of, oh, wow, that was a very moving story. Like right. something moved you um, internally. Um, and one of the examples that he used in a piece of uh, poetry, I think it was, is he said uh, a poet wrote this line talking about the moving moon and how the moon, you know, if you look up at it, you can kind of, feel it, it can be moving right in that emotional sense um, but also quite literally the tides of how the moon you know is involved in that and so that was just a very I just found it very interesting how um, some words that we use today still kind of hold on to that original participation but they can yeah. easily start to still fade away but one of the questions that I had was 
you've got original participation, you've got final participation, which is something that we haven't arrived at yet. But as I understand it, it's something that Barfield says that, you know, we're going to and need to eventually arrive at. But is, I can't remember, is there a middle thing between those two? There's original and there's final. Is there some, I forgot. I don't know yet. Okay. I'm working. <laughs> I don't know yet. Michael didn't mention it. So I'm assuming that he only has the two, but he may have another term for, you know, what, what he deems we're in right now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Current um, participation. I just find it interesting, though, that it follows that same progression as, like, his thoughts on that follow the same progression as as the scripture. Like, I like that. I love patterns, right? Like, so I see that pattern being repeated. And I found it really interesting because Michael said, you know, Barfield thinks that it's necessary we go through this, you know, removal away from the metaphysical and then, mm-hmm. and then back to it in this final participation yeah and that is exactly you know what where we find ourselves right in in um in modernity right we're Mm -hmm. we're, we're struggling with all that so yeah i i like that um there was something you were saying before that something came to my mind now lost it shoot it was good too (laughs) (laughs) um Oh, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. We'll all live without it. Well, if you think of it, yeah, just interrupt or, you know, when it comes back, just say, here it is. Here's what I would. <laughs> um, I've got time for one more. And if I remember yeah. right, this, this next one is pretty fun. <laughs> sure. This is yours now. Okay. This is poem number 14. It's called The Witch. Trapped amid the woods with guile, they led her bound in fetters vile, to death a deadlier sorceress than any born for earth's distress, since first the winner of fleece bore home the Colchian witch to Greece. Seven months with snare and gin, they've sought, to, they've sought the maid o'erwise within. The forest's labyrinth shade the lonely woodman, half afraid, far off, uh, far off her ragged form has seen, sauntering down the alleys green, or crouched in godless prayer alone at eve before a druid stone. But now the bitter chase is won, the quarry's caught, her magic's done. The bishops brought her strongest spell to naught with candle, book, and bell. With holy water splashed upon her, she goes to burning and dishonor, too deep damned to flee her shame. For thou beneath her hair of flame, her thoughtful head be lowly bowed, it droops for meditation proud, impenitent and pondering yet, things no memory can forget. Starry wonders she has seen, brooding in the wildwood green, with holiness for who can say in what strange crew she loved to play what demons or what gods of old deep mysteries unto her have told at dead of night in worship bent at ruined shrines magnificent or how the quivering will she sent alone into the great alone where all is loved and all is known who now lifts up her maiden eyes and looks around with soft surprise upon the noisy crowded square, the city oafs that nod and stare, the bishop's court that gathers there, the faggots in the blackened stake where sinners die for justice sake. Now she is set upon the pile, the mob grows still a little while till lo, before the eager folk up curls a thin blue line of smoke. Alas, the full, f- the full fed burghers cry, that evil loveliness must die. There it is. That is really um, anti Christian, that poem. Yeah. 
Well, he's talking about persecuting witches. Mm-hmm. The persecution of witches by the church. Yeah. Right? Yep. Burning burning her at the stake in the city square. Yeah, so like he's he, you know, he says the bishops brought her strongest spell to naught with candle, book, and bell, right? Mm-hmm. And um with holy water splashed on her, she goes to burning and dishonor, too deeply damned to feel her shame. For though beneath her hair of flame. So what's interesting about that or stood out to me anyway, is that she had red hair. I can kind of sympathize with that. (laughs) 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 Because a lot of these women who were burned at the stake were different, you Mm -hmm. know? They were outliers. They were outliers. Um, I'm not too sure what what the significance in the uh, UK of red hair is, but it's, I, I knew a, so I had a, a guy here, a roofer, who was Canadian. He had flaming red hair. Mm-hmm. And he went to Scotland for a year and worked there. And he worked in construction with Scottish construction workers. I said, well, how was that? He goes, oh, it was rough. It was really rough. <laughs> he said, first, I could hardly understand them because they had such a brogue, right? Mm-hmm. And secondly, I'm a redhead. And it's not cool to be a redhead in Scotland. I said, are you serious? I would have thought the other way around. Yeah. He said, no. No, gingers are looked down upon. A huh. ginger is not, right? And so I've heard, now I could be wrong, and if anybody wants to correct me, that would be great. But I've heard that the red hair was a result of Viking Vikings, right? Dominating in the UK. Mm-hmm. And so it was an obvious genetic trait that you came from a Viking if you mm-hmm. had red hair. And so for that reason, it was people with red hair were discriminated against by the, by the, um, you know, the natural born, natural born Britons because mm-hmm. they hated the Vikings. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to this, it's just, it's, he seems to be, he seems to be very sympathetic towards this woman. Yeah. That's how it felt and to me too. Very sympathetic towards the church. Mm-hmm. Which, um, you know, obviously shows us the position that he's in at this point in time, right? Yeah. Well, you think about it in terms of, um, this is something that we talked about in the, the last conversation we had, where Lewis was very big into mythology. He had a deep love for mythology. Yeah. And in this poem, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't paint the picture that this witch is just some, you know, woman who the whole town is pointing at and scapegoating and saying, yeah, these, a bunch of people in town got sick. Mm -hmm. Uh, We, you know, either we have, we have some rumors that this lady, you know, says things or she has, she's um, consorting with the devil. And so this is the source of the difficulty that befalls us. It's in, in this poem, Lewis um, talks about this lady as if she's actually communing with deeper, greater, more mythological type things that he's really, you know, um, has positive impulses about and that she's able to commune with kind of the bigger, more mystical parts of existence. Yeah. And, it, and it's not in a bad way. And yeah, he's, he's casting not only the church, but the townspeople as folks who were just like, yeah, we've got to, we've got to get rid of this lady. Yeah. Like he, he, he describes her, um, for though beneath her hair of flame, her thoughtful head, be lowly bowed. It droops for meditation, proud, impenitent and pondering yet things no memory can forget. Starry wonders she mm-hmm. has seen moving in the wildwood green with holiness. So, you know, she's, he admires her, her insight. He admires her connection to the world around her, the world of mythology, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, the world of nature, right? Yeah. Because uh, witches were often synonymous with nature. You know, mother, it was like a feminine thing, right? Yeah. Mother and nature stuff. Um, 
Yeah, she's the pure and, and holy figure in this poem where the church is definitely not. Yeah. Yeah. Where sinners die for justice sake. Mm. I like that because um, I've recently been um, kind of wrestling with George MacDonald's sermon on justice. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've read it, but it's pretty, it's pretty, um, it's pretty good. I've, re- I've read it a long time ago. I would need to reread it to, uh, <laughs> to yeah, well, you know, I can see why, you know, when I read that line in here where sinners die for justice sake, question mm-hmm. mark, mm-hmm. I can see why George MacDonald would have appealed to, to C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. And I have to just say one last thing that I like the last, the last line. Alas, the full fed burgers cry. Burger in German is a citizen, mm. right? So, and they're, and they're, you know, you, you kind of imagine them being a little bit overweight, a little proud, a little, mm-hmm. a little bit too well looked after thoughtless well and i and i think of her too this just came across my uh, this thought just came um i think of her as being out in the woods and you know maybe not really even being all that well fed maybe even fasting in some of her yeah uh, holy experiences some of her connections and so you contrast that with you know people who fasting is the last thing that they (laughs) that they would ever engage in since they're full fed yeah, like that, that, that's at dead of night in worship bent at ruined shrines magnificent or how the quivering will she sent alone into the great alone where all is loved and all is known. Mm. And now lifts up her maiden eyes and looks around with soft surprise upon the noisy crowded square, the city oafs that nod and stare. Mm. Yeah, it's a pretty good depiction, eh? I wonder why yeah. he wrote it, though. Yeah, I wonder what the motivation was for this one. Mm-hmm. I I know in um I think it's mere Christianity. He does briefly reference um witches. Um what was he taught? Maybe it was in the abolition of man, I can't remember. But he's making the point. No, no, no. It's it's mere Christianity where he's talking about like um the the natural law or maybe not the natural law, I'm probably getting it wrong, but he's talking about there being an objective moral law and how some people would argue against that whenever he first made the point. And they would say, you know, there, there are some civilizations that thought it was, that thought it was um, moral to, uh, to burn a woman at the stake that they thought was a witch. And so, you know, I, I see this poem as a time where he was really having that exact same thought. Um, okay. And so maybe this was a piece of it. You know, he, he goes on to elaborate on his point with that um, in Mere Christianity to, to talk about how. I, I don't <laughs> I wouldn't say that he was necessarily arguing for burning someone at the stake, but he he did say if if someone were actually being controlled by Satan and (laughs) was doing evil amongst this town, then the right thing to do might be to, (laughs) to kill that, that being. Yeah. Um, And he was just using it to make the point of, you know, the, the morals that they were following was, you know, this was a, a satanic being that they thought that they were dealing with. Now Mm -hmm. that's, you contrast him making that point in, again, I, pretty sure it's mere Christianity with the perspective that this poem is approaching it from. It's very interesting to do that. Well, maybe the, maybe she, maybe she um, represents or embodies for him the natural law, right? Like, because that's where he was at that point in his life. He was um, agnostic and he leaned towards the natural order of things, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and maybe the church kind of represented Maybe this is, um, this would be a long shot, but it's possible that this is how he may even perceive war, you know, where the natural law is being burnt at the stake in a sense, and, and the principalities and powers are like the church, you know, mm. only, uh, 
Um, wait, I, I mixed that up totally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's what this is. The war and the government would be that this represented. You know what I mean? Where you're taking, where the government is like the bishop. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's the power. Yep, the, the power. institutional and, power. And, um, and then all these innocent lives are just being, you know, maybe Word. that's where that, because he's, 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 you know, he's, all of these, all of these poems are refer, referring to the pain and suffering that he's seen in, mm. in the war. So this has to, this has to play or be part of that somehow. I've got it. I've got another idea on what it might be. And I know we're over time, so we can, I want to see what you think about this and then we can yeah. run. <laughs> um, one thought is, I know that he even like called himself an atheist at, at a certain point in his life and even looking back on where he was. So if he was in his, the depths of his atheism right here, one thing that he might be saying with this poem is just kind of a commentary toward religion and toward the church in particular. Yeah. And saying, look, none of this metaphysical stuff is real. But if it were, this witch, this person that you persecute and kill would be closer to the truth of what, yeah. of what metaphysics is than what your religion and what your church um, is saying is a part of, you know, greater reality or what you yeah, call God. Like she's yeah. much closer to the heart of this God that doesn't even exist than you guys right. could ever be. And here's yeah. a very clear, stark example of it. That's good, Jeff, I like that, that, that that's perfect. Um, that feels right. Um, he's, he's, he's quantifying everything that they have with a candle bell and a book. Mm-hmm. It's, it's <laughs> just completely uh, diminishing it, <laughs> diminishing yeah. all the symbolism and everything that that i'd be interested to see what jonathan peugeot would have to say about that with the young c.s lewis <laughs> yeah like, you're, you're minimizing these things these things are <laughs> so much deeper than you're giving them credit for <laughs> yeah no i think you you got that right on that's perfect you got that one right too jack i got two right two out of three <laughs> <laughs> I was, Great. I was neither right nor wrong on any of the other ones we talked about. <laughs> no, you can't be wrong with poetry. That's <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Sherry. I appreciate you doing this with me. Yeah, I'm glad to do it. It's good. It's good for me to do this. It's great. Good. Enjoy it. Good deal. Well, until next time, we'll say goodbye right here. Okay. <laughs> Have a good rest of your Sunday. Thanks. You too.